0: I'm Anna, and I'm a youth organizer who teaches sex ed.
1: And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula.
0: We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA in a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories. We're both really excited to be talking to Susan Yenno, who is the co-founder of Women Help Women, which is a global telehealth service that provides information support and abortion pills to people around the world And that does some really beautiful partnering with uh, feminist groups that are at the grassroots level, at the local level, all around the world, uh, all with the overarching goal of building global access to abortion pills and the information that folks need in order to take them safely. And I am really excited about this interview because Antonia and I, as we were contemplating this project, really felt the need for a kind of foundational episode, one where the terms are described, one where someone could listen to it and just be like, oh, okay, I kind of understand the gist of what folks are talking about when they say self-managed abortion. And Susan just handed us that overview on a like crystal clear platter like it was such a gift to have her um kind of hold forth and just and just explain like what is self-managed abortion what is the history behind self-managed abortion and what are the questions that arise in trying to get access to self-managed abortion out there into the world so yeah,
1: that's that's sort of my take on it. How did you feel about it, Antonia? The one thing that I do want to additionally acknowledge is that at the heart of this concept and at the heart of this project, we're talking about what institutions, systems, um, support networks, education, what what needs to be in place for someone or for an entire community to feel and to actually be able to practice self-determination when it comes to their bodies. So Susan Yano, I think, provides us with a beautiful overview of what tools need to be in place in order to really promote and help that self-determination and that ability for, for people with uteruses to be able to control their own, own bodies and understand their their own bodies. And there's a lot of work taking place and it's really a multi-pronged effort and she has been on the front lines for quite some time so we're super excited to share with you episode one today and we hope you enjoy thank you for listening so thank you again so much for having this conversation with us we are so thrilled to just dive in and we would just love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got started in this work, however you want to answer that question.
2: Sure. So I came to this work through the women's movement when I was in college and did it uh, as part of my activism commitment for many, many years. I trained as a social worker and had a full-time job working with people who had a history of domestic violence and or sexual abuse and did my activism on the side through a work, an organization that was called the Reproductive Rights Network. Mm-hmm. Um, I continued to do activism work around this until uh, 1992 when there were murders at the abortion clinics here in Boston. Hmm. And I decided I needed to invest more of my time in abortion access as I knew one of the people who had been murdered and was very um, impacted by that event locally. In the early 2000s, I became aware of abortion pills, both because they were finally registered in the United States, but because I began um, talking to an organization called Women on Waves and learning more about how abortion pills were available in other countries without a prescription and that people were using them. When I left the Abortion Access Project in 2006, I started working with Women on Waves and really uh, became fully informed about abortion pills, um, had the privilege of doing some training in other countries, uh, providing training in other countries, Tanzania, Thailand, Indonesia, the Middle East, and really bringing information about the incredible power of abortion pills to transform people's lives uh, to, to communities. In 2014, with some colleagues in other countries. We formed an organization called Women Help Women, which has a telemedicine service that provides abortion pills to people in over 90 countries. We do not provide those pills to the United States and also has an information service. Currently, Women Help Women is answering 120,000 emails a year in seven languages. (laughs) We have 34 staff based in 17 countries um, to provide information support, and supplies. Um, After the last election in the United States, with the election of He Who I Shall Not Name, um, and the impact that we all knew that was going to have on the already very restricted abortion access in the United States, Women Help Women launched a project in the U.S. called SAS, Self-Managed Abortion Safe and Supported. Um, While SAS does not provide abortion pills directly, Our website, abortionpillinfo.org, has information about how people have obtained the medicines in the U.S. It has information about how to use the pills safely. And it has a secure portal so anybody with questions can contact our counselors who are overseas in English or Spanish and ask any question they want. Uh, They will get back a randomized web link. They go to that web link. The information is there and then the web link goes blank after seven days. So there's Mm. no electronic trail that Mm -hmm. people have contacted SAS. Additionally, we're providing community trainings um, around the country. We've trained over 300 people directly in their communities Mm -hmm. about how to share information to both uh, make sure people use the pills safely and effectively, but also to minimize legal risk. We're excruciatingly aware that 21 people in the US have been arrested for using pills that they should have every right to use outside of the medical system. So we want people to understand how to minimize that legal risk. We recently launched a new app called Yuki, E U K I.
0: I've got it's it amazing. on my phone. I love yeah. It. <laughs> and it is
2: available for free from mm-hmm. Google Play and from the Play Stores. Mm-hmm. Now- the reason it is a unique it is a period tracker it has information about contraception it has information about abortion both how to find a clinic and how to manage it on one's own information about how to avoid stds totally customizable and makes no assumptions about how or whether a person is being sexually active but what is most critical is totally private and secure the information stays in the phone so I think we've all heard that horrible story about the government of Missouri tracking, mm-hmm. uh, extrapolating information about people's menstruation after they went to a Planned Parenthood. <sighs> uh, our tagline <sighs> is now keep Missouri out of your pants. Use your Stay private and safe. So, um, but Only Missouri right. though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it's happening in other places. So, many, so many stories about people who use a commercialized uh, period tracker and then right. start ads. Um, and then, if they miss a period, they start getting information about baby supplies, which is so <sighs> intrusive. So, uh, it's the worst of capitalism. So, mm-hmm. we're really proud of this app. That is safe and secure. We It was generously supported by anonymous donors. Uh-huh. And therefore, uh, there is no way to harvest the information. We won't know what parts of the app people are using. Um, we certainly know the number of downloads and we're happy uh-huh. to see those numbers going up. But we have no information about the users either. We wanted this to be totally secure and totally private.
0: mm uh-huh yeah shout out as a user of yuki it's Mm. uh, totally and completely intuitive and does feel really really cozy to know that that information is not uh just sort of trickling
2: into the wrong hands i'm so glad people are are finding it and using it and i hope more people will find it Um, Mm -hmm. as with any nonprofit, we don't have a lot of ways to let people know that it's available so Mm -hmm. i'll be thrilled if anybody listening to this checks it out um, Mm -hmm. and shares it with their friends
0: i hope so too we were wondering um just given how beautifully connected the sas work is to to this conversation that's happening in the u.s we were wondering um if we could just start at the most basic level here and ask if you could define how you understand what a self-managed abortion is. Uh, sure. Yeah. That's
2: a great question. So we define self-managed abortion as a person self-sourcing abortion pills, either misoprostol alone or mifepristone plus misoprostol, using them without outside of the healthcare system with no clinician involved, hopefully with supportive friends and neighbors, and managing the process by themselves. What self-managed abortion isn't, is other, uh, in our definition, is other methods of ending a pregnancy. So, for example, uh, there are many, many ways to end a pregnancy. Some people use herbs. And while that works for some people, there isn't good scientific information to verify that. Mm -hmm. Um, So while, we at SAS don't discourage or encourage the use of herbs we are talking about the use of medicines that have been thoroughly studied probably more than any other medicines in the world um, are on the list of essential medicines of the world health organization and are you and the protocols for how to use them are public on the world health organization on other websites and can be widely shared so they don't depend on the particular skill of like herbs might, of somebody with deep knowledge um in actually using them. Mm-hmm. We also exclude uh the many, many ways people have tried to end an abortion that are not safe. Uterine massage, inserting mm-hmm. something into the uterus, swallowing mm-hmm. something that could be poisonous or caustic. So mm-hmm. when we talk about what we call SMA, self managed abortion, we're talking about abortion pills either Mm -hmm. as hospital alone or never personalize a hospital and know from studies done in other countries and from building evidence here in the u.s that if people use these medicines um they with good information they are safe and they are effective they're safer than penicillin they're certainly safer than viagra Mm-hmm. And they are overregulated only because of the politics of abortion. Mm-hmm. If this was simply about the safety of the medicine, these medicines would be over the counter. For many, many people, science and facts still matter. And so there are really, there's a really good study that was done by Genuity and a group called Plan mm-hmm. C that actually ordered pills from the internet and tested them. And this information is on the abortionpillinfo.org website and on the Plan C website and Genuity. This is a published science, it's been published in scientific journals. The medicines were safe, mm-hmm. they were effective. Um, so, on the one hand, we have science, on the other hand, we have people's stories. And while we don't have a lot of stories in the U.S. because of, because people, uh, because the behavior can be criminalized, we have dozens of studies about people using these medicines on their own safely and effectively. There are no incidents that I know of, of people getting pills that were not what they claimed to be. Now, there have been some cases of people obtaining expired medicines. But the amazing thing about methamphetamine and misoprostol is the worst thing that will happen is they don't work. So Mm -hmm. if the medicine is expired, it won't work. Mm -hmm. But it won't harm the person who uses it. And I think maybe if we can take a minute to talk about what these medicines do, it might be helpful. Mm -hmm. So... 15 out of 20% of all pregnancies end in a miscarriage. Yep. Miscarriage is a common part of reproductive health for people born with uteruses. Mm-hmm. The chance of a complication of miscarriage is extremely small. There is a tiny chance that somebody who's having a miscarriage, a spontaneous uh, miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, if you will, Um who either wanted to be pregnant or didn't know they were pregnant, but their body is rejecting the pregnancy, there's a tiny chance that that person will have a hemorrhage, which is very heavy bleeding, or get an infection because they will bleed out, but a little bit of tissue will be retained. Abortion pills cause a miscarriage. There is the same chance of a complication with uh-huh. the abortion pills as it is with a spontaneous miscarriage. So, yes, with the abortion pills, there is a slight chance, very tiny, that the person could have too much bleeding or could get an infection. But because miscarriage is so common, every emergency room doctor, every primary care doctor knows how to treat miscarriage. If a person is using abortion pills and has any medical concern, if they understand that the pills cause a miscarriage and if they've taken them as instructed at abortionpillinfo.org or in Yuki, or uh, by contacting Women Help Women, they can say they are having a miscarriage and they will get exactly the medical treatment that they need. There is no difference in Mm -hmm. the chance of a complication. There is no difference in the symptoms. There's no difference in the presentation, and there's no difference in the treatment. And it's important for people to understand that there's no test of blood or urine for either mifepristone or misoprostol. So as long as the person took it, the medicine in the mouth as instructed, either in the buccal cavity, which is that space between the jaw and the cheek, or under the tongue, and we can talk more about the protocols if you want. Um and then swallow the remains, there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. So as no, long as the that person that. understands what not to say or what to say, there's also no legal risk, or there's minimum legal risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're questioned and they stick to the story, there's no proof. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Gosh. So this makes me think, just in the context of, or to to remain on the question of safety, do you feel like, from your vantage point, that this messaging is reaching the folks themselves, the people with universes who um, want to get this information? So that needs to change. That's
2: a real challenge uh, yep. because we are a huge country. There's no, when it comes to media or information, there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people talk about the divides in our country around issues like climate change. People don't have the same information. Mm-hmm. So your question is really the challenge for any public health uh, message. How do we get the information that, you know, flavored vaping could be harmful to right? products could be harmful to children i mean it's a huge challenge what i can tell you is two things one is that we're trying (laughs) through every possible type of mainstream media social media the app uh, our website community shares and we know we're reaching a tiny percentage of the people who could use this information Mm -hmm. but what we also know is that if someone has an unwanted pregnancy they will find a way to end it, mm-hmm. and if they uh, they may cho- try to they may go through extraordinary lengths to get to a clinic, and get support for funding their abortion. They may use these pills on their own, even if they're not sure how safe they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think the um, I think our challenge is that unfortunately people. Maybe using these medicines and be unnecessarily frightened about the safety risk. But I don't think that stops people. Through history, we know, because we know about people who've died trying to end their, their, an unwanted pregnancy. So we know that people may over or underestimate the risk. But if somebody doesn't want to have, doesn't want to carry a pregnancy to term, most of the time they will find a way to end it. We just want that to be as safe as possible, which is why we are promoting the use of abortion pills inside a clinic, outside a clinic, in wherever a person chooses to use them because they are so safe and effective.
0: I was wondering if you think there are any particular groups who have especially a lot to gain from easy access to these pills, like could benefit the most from from SMA becoming more accessible, safe etc
2: i think everybody would benefit because part of what makes abortion scary is the stigma around it Mm -hmm. part of what makes abortion scary isn't it's not the medicines it's the word abortion and how that has been politicized and weaponized um, so that people feel fear and shame of a simple uh, process that happens, as I said, 15 to 20% of the time in, in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And while people may feel grief around a miscarriage, they aren't scared to talk about it in the same mm-hmm. way. They don't feel stigmatized in the same way. And I don't want to minimize the uh, difficulty that some people have getting pregnant and, and the emotional toll of that. But we're really talking about something very different when we talk about abortion stigma. And what I think is really the potential of freeing uh, abortion pills and getting them into the public sphere is how they change the conversation about abortion. They demedicalize the process. And what I have heard from community groups where I've shared information is that when people have the information and understand how simple and straightforward these pills are and how safe, they feel empowered. And I believe that empowerment breaks that feeling of stigma And also allows us to mobilize politically in a very different way. So, we have a slogan at Women Help Women that we're trying to connect the swallow, the the individual swallowing of a pill to political mobilization. And that mobilization is around demedicalizing, destigmatizing, decriminalizing, um, abortion and demystifying abortion and abortion pills. And so, Uh, To get to your question, who could most benefit? Anybody who could possibly get pregnant could benefit. In an ideal world in the United States, if I had an unwanted pregnancy, I would call my doctor or my primary care provider or go to a, uh, a health center, get information, and that clinician would say to me, so, would you like to come in and get an ultrasound and get the pills here? Or would you like me to call it into your local pharmacy, your Walgreens, your CVS? What's best for you? And what we know from informal surveys is some people would say, oh, I'd much rather come into the clinic. I feel better doing it that way. And other people would feel better just picking up the pills on their own, controlling the timing of when they take it and uh, managing the process on their own with good information. Mm -hmm. So that's the ideal for a long way from it, but everybody would benefit from demedicalizing abortion tests.
1: So do you, just in that you brought up the clinic um, and that specific scenario, is there a conversation around economic competition between the clinics and the medical care providers and the emergence of... SMA, where one can procure the pills and out, outside of a medical clinic. is yep. it, How is that um, conversation between those two, those two forces playing out as you see it currently?
2: So I think, I think that's a, a, a small question and a much bigger picture. So I want to paint a bigger picture, which is the number of clinics in the United States over the last 15 years has de- decreased dramatically. Yeah. Dramatically, because mm-hmm. of, because of, uh, increased abortion restrictions and the costs of security and the costs of complying with unreasonable, uh, state requirements. And because there are more effective long-acting contraceptives, the number of people with unwanted pregnancies has gone down and the cost of keeping a clinic open have gone up. Mm -hmm. And where that intersects is that clinics have, quote, gone out of business. Mm -hmm. Um, We now have seven states with one clinic left, only one. So into that, uh, so I want to paint that picture because it's not simply that people are using pills without going to the clinic and decreasing number of people go to the clinic. Clinics have more uh, economic problems because there are many economic drivers. Uh, right now of trying to keep a clinic open and many of them are staying open by their fingernails. And we need clinics because there are people who would choose to have an abortion at the clinics. And because later in pregnancy, self-managing an abortion becomes more complicated, more painful, slightly less medically complicated. And we, we want those clinics as places of holistic reproductive health care, right? Mm-hmm. So there is nothing in the self-managed abortion movement that seeks to undermine clinics. Mm-hmm. And in fact, SAS works really closely with clinics to think about none of us can control the choices that people make. If there's two clinics in a city, the reason a person may go to one rather than the other uh, is up to them, right? And if a person has a choice between obtaining pills on their own and going to a clinic the choice is up to them and clinics are founded on the principle of reproductive choices Mm -hmm. one of the exciting things that clinics are starting to think about is how to add miscarriage management services to the services that they provide so that a they can support people who may come in uh having Mm -hmm. to their knowledge or not having uh, provoked a miscarriage or because clinics provide much more empathetic service mm-hmm. than hospital emergency rooms do.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and miscarriage management is usually not an emergency unless the person has extremely heavy bleeding, you know, which is an emergency, but very, very rare. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's an amazing service that clinics could be providing in a way that is much more uh, patient-centered and person-centered than any emergency room. So those conversations are going on. Um, Clinics are certainly understandably concerned about all the reasons that their numbers are going down because they have to stay open. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that any of them would say self-managed abortion is the major driver Mm -hmm. of their economic precariousness. Mm. Because one of the things I want to highlight is one of the first studies about self-managed abortion in the United States was done in 2000 in New York City. This study found, went to a health center uh, up in the um, up in a uh, northern part of Manhattan to a health center that primarily served a Dominican population, and in that population, five percent of the folks at this health center, which was not a reproductive health center, but just Uh, a general primary care practice health center. 5% of the people knew about or had used Misoprostol for abortion. This was in 2000. This is in Manhattan, where arguably, uh, New York is a state with Medicare, Medicaid coverage of abortion, an excellent subway system, lots of Mm clinics, wonderful abortion funds. And yet, people were opting to manage their abortion on their own mm-hmm. in 2000. So we are paying more attention to self-managed abortion right now, but we don't know how long it's been going on. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. We think it's increasing, but we don't have a baseline to measure from. These pills have been used in Latin America since the right. 80s. So mifepristone is a medicine that was originally registered for gastric ulcers. In the 1980s, women in Brazil noticed that right on the warning label that came with the misoprostol was a label that said, attention, precaution, do not use if you're pregnant, could cause uterine contractions. And being very smart people, they said, oh, okay. (laughs) Because throughout Latin America, with a few exceptions, abortion is illegal for almost any indicator. This came to the attention of science when an uh, epidemiologist noticed that who had been monitoring maternal mortality from unsafe abortion across Latin America noticed a sudden drop in deaths in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And the next year, he noticed it a second time. Mm-hmm. And people started trying to figure out why and went out into the community and learned that women were using misoprostol for safe abortion. This, uh, you know, then clinicians started studying it, the World Health Organization started studying it, the best possible protocols for misoprostol, which is before 12 weeks, 12 tablets, 200 micrograms each, used in uh, a sequence of three times over a period of time, and again, the exact protocol is at abortionpillinfo.org, because I want people to know these protocols. Mm-hmm. Um uh, that's how misoprostol came to be used, um, p- because misoprostol alone is eighty to eighty-five percent effective in the first twelve weeks of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, people started doing trying to figure out how to increase that efficacy, and the drug mifepristone was invented by uh, a pharmaceutical company in France called uh, Russell Uclaf, which is why when the medicine first came to the U.S., it was called RU. For are you 486 that was the, the right. drug name um, and with that drug which is mifepristone which stops the flow of hormones to the developing fetus um, with mifepristone less misoprostol is needed and mifepristone plus 4 misoprostol is 95 to 98% effective in the first 12 weeks so um, know. you know both protocols are very useful but I want to give credit to the people who started the idea of pills uh, to cause a miscarriage. And that was women in the community. So this is just coming back to where it started. In the community, in our own hands. The tools that we need to control our fertility and our health.
1: Yeah, just thinking about those people in Brazil, the first person who figured that out, (laughs) that just like told all their friends. It's almost like, man, how, how do these things... Bread. And to your point, if there are people who want this, they will find a way. Yep. They, will, they will do what they have to do to, to, to find a way. So I think back to SAS, S-A-S-S, the, the second part, the first part is safe and the second is supported. That supported feels so full and ripe and also like it potentially needs redefinition in an SMA context
2: there are I know there are many many groups I some of them are connected to each other some are not. the challenge we have here is that it is legal to share information mm-hmm. but in the context of helping somebody use pills outside of the medical system in some states that practice has been criminalized so people are not publicly setting up websites saying, Want to self-manage your abortion? Contact me. We're here to support you through that. Um, When you have your cramps and bleedings, we'll fill your hot water bottles. We'll bring you your ibuprofen and your anti-nausea medicine. We're here for you. Mm -hmm. Um, That isn't happening. I don't know how many groups already exist. I hope everybody who hears this uh, um, broadcast will think about how they can Get the information, learn the information themselves, and share it with others because one of the things i want to uh, I want to highlight is abortion in, information about how to use abortion pills is uniquely challenging mm. because, like so many things, people don't learn about it until they need it right. mm-hmm. in an ideal world, part of good sex education would be people would understand their bodies people. With would under, people with uteruses would understand how the menstrual cycle works. They would know about fertility awareness. They would mm-hmm. know about contraception. They would know about emergency contraception. They would know about abortion pills. And that information would just be something that people grew up with. So that if and when they needed any of that information, they would have it. But one of the things we know from an experiment that SAS did with social media, with buying banner ads in... Uh, louisiana and arkansas is mm-hmm. people don't click on information about abortion pills uh in their busy day But trying to reach the few people because we talk about how one in four one in three or one in four people will have an abortion in their lifetimes right mm-hmm. but that means at any given moment i might not know a single person who has an unwanted pregnancy um and for anybody during the 30-something years of their reproductive lives, there may be only three or four times when they are concerned that they might have an unwanted pregnancy. So sharing the information as information to educate ourselves is really critical. Mm. How yeah. to make sure that enough people have it so that when somebody in their community uh, needs support, I think that is the challenge that we're facing. (laughs) We were talking about culture shift, and we all know that culture shift is complicated and takes a very long time, and that some uh, communities will make that shift more quickly than others. Communities that already feel empowered and aware of their bodies, uh, doulas, for example, feminists, will make that I have already started making that culture shift, right? And they're going to raise their children and they're going to talk to their cousins and neighbors and friends differently. My concern is how do we reach the most vulnerable folks in our country? The people who live in states where there's only one clinic, it's 250 miles away and there's a waiting period and the person doesn't even have money for gas for one trip, let alone two to that clinic. Mm-hmm. And really cannot contemplate for whatever reason adding to their existing family or starting a family at this moment in their lives. And th- that's the challenge that we're taking on. We really, w- we really want to work with everybody so that people are more respected. Our autonomy is more respected. Uh, our reproductive rights are more respected, and we live in a society that values reproductive justice. That is, that's a heavy lift. There are a lot of people doing it. Thank goodness. We have to continue to uh, support each other's efforts. So we have to build broad and deep coalitions, um, and we can never forget that the people who most need good reproductive health care are the people who are least likely to have the bandwidth to be in those conversations.
1: Are there any things that you could share about your international experience Mm -hmm. that would really directly apply to the conversation
2: that's being had in the U.S. right now? Multiple things. And I think I'm really glad you asked that question because I think the U.S. exists in a bubble too often and doesn't take advantage of the amazing innovation and feminist energy in other countries. So several things. One is the first time uh, I participated in the community training, it was in Tanzania. Many of the people in our audience were not literate. By the end of the training, they totally understand, understood abortion pills. They had made up a song to learn the protocols. That project was, has been going for seven years. They have reached thousands of people um, who have used mysoprostol because that is available uh, over the counter there who have used misoprostin for safe abortion. So, if people in Tanzania with less educational opportunity and less infrastructure than in the US can make this work as community groups, and by the way, abortion is not legal in Tanzania, Mm -hmm. and I know we can do it here. So that's number one. Number two, I would say we have had the experience in Indonesia, Thailand, uh, several places in Africa, several places in Latin America, of helping community groups figure out how to create hotlines, help lines, website, phone lines, um, all kinds of different communication structures. And again, if it can work in those contexts, it can work in the us So that's exactly, I mean, the app that, uh, Yuki is the idea for an app to support people self-managing their abortion came from our colleagues in Indonesia. It wasn't something we thought of. Obviously, it's been adapted to the U.S. context and has a lot of information that the folks in Indonesia wouldn't need or want. Um, I should say it was based on focus groups done by IBIS Reproductive Health to really figure out what people in this country want in a reproductive health app. So it is very targeted. Mm -hmm. Um, And a Spanish version should be coming out soon, by the way, um, for the U.S. context. But I think we have so much to learn um, from countries where abortion has never, uh, at least in the last 40 years, has never been legal. And people are having safe abortions with pills.
0: In the Tanzania example, it's like art, like visuals and sound, like songs just cannot be dissected from the work itself. It's like, that is how the information is transmitted.
2: And well, it, it, I, I want to lift up that at the Women Help Women website, womenhelp.org, we have graphics in uh-huh. so many languages, mm-hmm. uh, but with minimal words, mm-hmm. um, to help people learn, to help people uh, learn how to use either alone or methylprostal plus mysoprostol, what to expect, what the although rare, what the signs are of needing to seek medical care. And these are, uh, you know, front and back. So two pages of mm-hmm. graphics that we have used around the world. So I really, uh, and everything on the Women Health website or uh, abortionpillinfo.org, which is the U.S. facing website, is open source, which means people can copy it without asking. It's designed to, uh, for people to take. So anybody listening to this who wants to see the graphics is welcome to get that. Anybody who wants to improve the graphics can get in <laughs> touch with us. Um, we're always learning, evolving, and changing. And we want artists and spoken word uh, performers and anybody else to take our materials and amplify them in whatever way is appropriate for their context.
1: The context to this last question that I'm going to ask is that I heard this from a doula reproductive health practitioner who I listen to, Kimberly Ann Johnson, um, who I'm a big fan of, but I'm I'm using a question that she poses to her interviewees at the end of her conversations. So thank you, Kimberly, in advance for inspiring this. Uh but if you had a microphone and you were standing on the top of a building and you could share one thing with folks below you, above you, to the left and right of you, what would be that one thing that you'd want to transmit above all?
2: Wow, that's a hard question. I know. Only, I only get one.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you, you can step in as much as you want.
2: <laughs> uh, okay, this is gonna be a really long run-on sentence then. Okay, um, I would have to have, take a breath in the middle of the megaphone. Yep. I <laughs> think what I would want to say is reproductive rights are human rights. And we all have the right to control our bodies. Abortion, unwanted pregnancy is all part of the experience of half of the people on this planet. And mm-hmm. we have the right to determine the outcome of that experience. And abortion pills are a safe and effective, exciting, innovative uh both tool to control our fertility and a way to build community around supporting bodily autonomy and demedicalizing and demystifying, not just uh, the process of abortion, but how our bodies work. That
1: was beautiful and I would say quite concise.
2: (laughs) Well, you run out of breath if you only get one sentence on a (laughs) megaphone.
1: And that's it for this episode. We want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them. If you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, a friend, family member, or colleague, please share this episode with them. Our goal is to demystify this conversation and what that takes is talking about it. Head over to our website smapodcast.org to get the resources discussed in this interview as well as the transcript, which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one.